Hello, and welcome back to The Indie, a podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and after taking a bit of a hiatus, The Indie is back with weekly episodes. But before diving into this week's cover story, I wanted to highlight the cover stories and articles from last week's issue and the Poet Laureate issue from the beginning of this month. So first off, I'm here with Charles Donnellan, Executive Arts Editor for The Independent, discussing the Poet Laureate cover story featuring Santa Barbara's ninth Poet Laureate, Emma Treas. So, hi, Charles. Could you tell me a bit about this year's Poet Laureate and what is so important about this nomination? Hi, Molly. The new Poet Laureate is named Emma Treas. She has lived in Santa Barbara for a little over a decade, and she's a professor at Santa Barbara City College. But she moved here from Miami, which is where she grew up, and she is a Cuban-American and just a really, really brilliant writer and thinker about contemporary Latinx culture. She learned a lot as a journalist in Miami. She was an arts writer and then a a journalist for the Big Daily there. And she has applied both clearly a profound knowledge of poetry with the kind of street smarts and interesting, exciting stories that you would associate with contemporary journalism. So I, I really like the combination in her work, and I think she's a great choice for this role. So what does the Poet Laureate do, and why does this position matter in Santa Barbara? What a great question. I think when they first started doing the whole Poet Laureate thing, and I'm not talking anymore about Santa Barbara now, I'm talking about like England, you know, Henry VIII might have been the guy to have the first Poet Laureate. Seems like that rings a bell. It was, you know, to do on-commissioned poems at the king's request. You would have to hang around was obviously a little more distinguished than, you know, the court jester, but it definitely was, came out of like almost a medieval notion. Obviously the laurels, that's, that's ancient Greece. Early modern civilization begins to elaborate the grandeur of the government by hiring a poet. And that's kind of what we're doing here. But in Santa Barbara, we've only had a poet laureate since 2005. So we're new to this. Uh, she's the ninth The first was Barry Spax, who was a uh, beloved professor at UCSB. We've had a bunch of really good people since then. David Starkey, Chris Yost, uh, Laura Ann Boslar, who was the Poet Laureate up until very recently. And they've all been good in different ways. But I think maybe it's the journalist in me, but I think this is a really fun and really exciting time for this role. Because now I'm getting to your question, Uh, What does a Poet Laureate do? Well, this Poet Laureate is going to be helping publish other people's poetry, which is actually a really cool, really humble approach. I'm hoping that we will get some occasional poems from her that will be on Santa Barbara subjects. We're publishing this week one of her poems that's called A Novena for Garden Street that she's already written. It's a great poem about Garden Street. But the uh, primary uh, duties are to raise the profile work closely with the library and do everything that they think is appropriate to encourage people to enjoy poetry in Santa Barbara. So for you as a writer, how was it writing a cover story on another writer? Oh, that's a great question because it is a little weird. I do have a background in writing literary criticism, but it is not at all the kind of thing that I associate with writing a cover story for The Independent. (laughs) 
And in this case, um, a couple of things came together to, to cause me to handle it the particular way that I did. Because the assignment started back when we were still kind of quarantined, I had to interview her on the phone. So I didn't have the chance. Ordinarily on a profile, you really want to spend some time with the person and maybe even go somewhere, engage in some kind of activity, but that wasn't available for us. We actually did meet up one night at Draftsman Alehouse by coincidence, but what made up for the lack of uh, time spent together was how colorful and anecdotal a lot of her poetry is. And I spent many pleasant hours reading and rereading her book, which is called Tropicalia, and kind of trying to figure out how much of it was based on true stories, whether the settings were real. And what I came to learn was that most of them, in fact, were. She's like one click of the dial away from journalism in a lot of her poetry. And it makes it really fun because you're learning about her life and her culture and Miami. And at the same time, you're enjoying this really wonderful language. So how does her poetry reflect her career as a journalist? Could you give me some examples of the pieces that you've read? Sure. The um, Myth of the Wildest one is about the aftermath of a uh, protest that took place in Miami in the early 2000s, where police actually fired tear gas and rubber bullets into a crowd of union organizers. And um, in a time immediately following that, the British socialist singer-songwriter Billy Bragg was in town to play a concert in solidarity with the groups. And Billy Bragg ended up sheltering a group of people. And as I understand it, either Emma was one of the people who went to the hotel room or she knew about it. Anyway, she wrote a really brilliant, funny, exciting narrative poem about this night that Billy Bragg protected the protesters in Miami. But there's some other great examples. You know, she clearly had a lot of different kinds of assignments. So there's poem that's kind of in the form of a restaurant review that's very funny. There are some about some of her favorite hangouts, venues in uh, Miami and what goes on at them. Uh, you know, it, it was just a, such a great change of pace. And also, I really do believe that we have found somebody um, who is up to doing something cool and new with this role. I really expect great things from her, and I'm excited to see how she moves forward with being Poet Laureate, because I think she's got some good ideas, and I know she's a good writer. Well, it's a very exciting announcement. I look forward to hearing and reading about all that she does in the position. And thank you once again, Charles Dumlin, for speaking with me about the ninth Poet Laureate of Santa Barbara. Thank you. Inspired by the Poet Laureate announcement, students from Vieja Valley School were asked to write their own pieces inspired by their experiences over the last year of distance learning, adjusting to the pandemic, and social justice movements that took place across the country. Sixth grader Cameron DePaco reads her poem titled The Art of Living for the Indie and shared with me a bit about her inspiration for the piece. Hello, my name is Cameron DePaco, and I'm reading my poem called The Art of Living. We are committed to a life of happiness, not a life of division, a life that brings purpose to our country, our people, and our world, a life that will never be broken by those who do not stand with us. This beast has torn us apart, only for us to find that we've never been so close together, to find that through his hardship is hope for a more peaceful world. As we reach into the sunlight and take flight as we ignite, so we can fight for this love that will never be lost. What we want is so simple yet so, so complicated. 
unity, self-love, feeling safe, hope. If only we had the courage to fight for it, to stand for it, to live for it, it would always be in our grasp. Hope is breath in the cold. Although there is only a sliver of it, it's there, and that's enough, and it's born within us. Everything feels gray, like there's no point anymore, but we are surrounded by color, color that will save us all. If only we look for it and share it with one another. This wall that encloses us has us calling for help, falling for freedom, crawling for courage. We must fix what we broke, repair what we shattered. We are not perfect, but life does not have to be perfect for it to be wonderful. So while we once wondered, how can this disease be shattering our society? Now we wonder, how can our society be shattering this disease? We are strong people who are fighting for a strong country, a country that will keep us tethered, a country that will never let us break. We are committed to a life of happiness, not a life of division, a life that brings purpose to our country, our people, and our world, a life that will never be broken by those who do not stand with us. Thank you. That was beautiful, Cameron. So what was your inspiration behind the poem? I know you were told to write about the pandemic, but it seemed like your poem drew on a lot of other things that are going on in the world right now. Well, in sixth grade, we watched the video of Amanda Gorman reading her poem on Inauguration Day, and that was mostly our big inspiration. And then we also watched some other videos from her, and we read some other poems by other poets. Did this assignment inspire you to take up writing, or had you always been someone who gravitated towards writing in general or writing poetry specifically? I've always really liked writing, but I've never really written that many poems. This was kind of the first time for me. We read a lot of stories in class, but not really poems. So this was my first time, definitely. Well, first time for a poem, and it was wonderful. It was very long, too. You had a lot to say. Yes, thank you. So within the poem, you use a lot of imagery that connects back to each other. Where did you find the inspiration for the words and phrases that you used? Well, our in sixth grade, we brainstormed some ideas and we took like some words that Amanda Gorman had used in her poem on Inauguration Day. So that's where I got the word like tethered and other words like that. So it was mostly Amanda Gorman that really was the inspiration behind this poem. And Amanda Gorman is the youngest speaker to ever speak at an inauguration. So how does that make you feel? It's actually very inspiring to me. It really shows me that young people can do a lot of good things, too. And she's really inspiring to me in our class. Thank you so much, Cameron DeBacco, for sharing your piece, The Art of Living, right here on The Indie. Now over to Selena Garcia, who recently wrote an article on Carolyn Clark, a local artist who recently put together a new deck of tarot cards. So Selena, what inspired you to write this piece on her? Well, I think being that we've been in this pandemic for a year now, it's kind of difficult to like meet people. I mean, it's like I don't really go out to like drink very much or whatever. So just like I think social media has just become a really big way to connect with one another. So naturally, I learned about Caro through Instagram. And once I started following her uh, sometime this past year, I learned that I'm actually more familiar with her work than I knew. She used to have some of her work displayed at Cafe Anna, which is now Secret Bell. And she also has some of her art prints at Lazy Eye in Goleta. I had an article come out in the paper talking about the artist Carolyn Clark. 
who created her very first uh, tarot deck in six months. And I was inspired to write about it because it was just such an incredible feat because there are 78 cards in a traditional tarot deck. And I, I'm just amazed that she completed this in a year. And like she told me, and I wrote about in the article, she expected like years to pass before having like the final product in her hands. And I was just messaging her yesterday after the article went live and she was saying how, because she originally was into her second printing and now she's only had like a few for that second printing. So I'm hoping that with this article, like she's going to have to go into a third and she's a really incredible artist. And I really hope that people like are inspired to like take up a pen after looking at her work or inspired to like get into tarot. Like if you've been interested in it, like go for it, support like a really cool local artist. So what have you come to understand about tarot culture? So tarot culture, if I can consider myself like a part of it, is just really intuitive and expansive and it doesn't leave anyone out. And I like that it can be used as like a tool for like divination or self-exploration when it comes to like your relationships with like the people around you or like your work or your living environment. Like you kind of create like a relationship with your cards in some way, like they could really put you on blast sometimes, which I think is really interesting. I just really have always been so interested in how people are able to like derive meaning from the cards, like taking into consideration that like the four different elements, you know, like fire, which is wands, I believe, and then cups for water, swords is air or like intellect, and then pentacles is earth. I mean, tarot cards have been around since I believe like the 1430s, if I'm not mistaken. So I think it's really interesting to see how people like yeah derive meaning from something from like the original Smithwaite deck and how those like meanings have changed or evolved like over time. And I think that's very interesting to note that it is something that has evolved over the course of centuries for many different communities. And I think especially during the pandemic, it was a way to anticipate what was coming next. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting to think of tarot as not just as necessarily a way of like predicting the future, but sometimes kind of like affirming things that you're kind of particularly like going through or like, or I, like I go on TikTok a lot. I have like that algorithm where I get a lot of people, you know, who just like read tarot and do like collective readings. And I always think it's really interesting when like, you know, I'm looking at my phone and they'll pull a card that maybe I pulled that morning. And I'm like, wow, like I know the algorithm is like specific and that we're being like spied on or whatever, but I just like, it's very interesting. So in talking with Carolyn for your article, what have you come to understand about the accessibility of tarot culture to anyone? Well, I really like what she said about, I asked her like what card really like resonates with her. And she said the fool, which is the first card, like in the major arcana. I love what she said. It's like, oh, you know, people think of the fool. They think of, oh, the dumb. But, <laughs> but the fool is actually like really like liberating when it's just like when you have like a clean slate and like there's so many possibilities in front of you instead of being really scared or like daunted by just like the vastness of opportunities or possibilities. The fool is just a reminder, like, just go for it. Do it. Like there's literally nothing stopping you. And I was really inspired by like her, her just like kind of talking about being like the fool. You know, she's talking about being like the mom to to very young children and like creating art and her husband is also an artist and kind of like with this pandemic just changing like everybody's like circumstances how the two of them have been able to like create like some type of balance where they could like both pursue their art but also like you know be parents together and I was just really inspired by her just being able to complete something like this like in six months you know I'm not always one of those people who could just like finish something like all at once but like you know just seeing like her drive is like really inspiring and I think 
then yeah, it was just really interesting to see like her own process or how she did it you know she started off like with like the high priestess which is like a pretty popular card I've seen a lot of people like that with like tattoos or people kind of just like tap into like that like boss energy <laughs> kind of like with the high priestess and um, I guess what I've learned through her is like there's just endless things to learn through tarot and about ourselves and it's really just kind of like a tool to kind of just get to like know like your environment or it becomes somewhat a bit like ritualistic like I like to pull a card like in the morning I like to pull one when I go to bed at night like I said like tarot can be really like affirming and not just so much like fortune telling but yes that too (laughs) well thank you so much Selena for talking with me yeah no thank you for having me now about last week's issue, I'm here with Victor Bryant, sports reporter, and John Zant, sports columnist for The Independent, talking about the Cunninghams, one of the most influential sports families in the nation from right here in Santa Barbara. So what is so special about the Cunningham family, and how did their formative years in Santa Barbara influence their athletic careers? Well, this is John Zant here. I watched all the Cunninghams play in high school at Santa Barbara High School. First day on the job, I saw a Santa Barbara High football practice. I looked at Sam Cunningham. He was 6'3", 220 pounds. I'd never seen such a perfect football player in my life. And he was a great uh, linebacker and fullback who went on to SC and the New England Patriots. And uh, Bruce and Anthony came along in in the 70s. Anthony was a very good defensive player in football. And Bruce was a a good defensive back and a very good sprinter. And uh, then Randall came along, future all-pro quarterback in uh, 1980. So 68 to 80, I saw those uh, Cunninghams uh, tear up the football field and so had some great track and field highlights uh, where Sam uh, won the state championship in the shot foot and Randall high jumped six foot eight and pole vaulted 13 feet. And uh, Victor, of course, Caught up with all four brothers uh, uh, for the story. Yeah, so uh, I'd heard about, you know, the Cunningham brothers being in town and being a sports reporter. You know, their legacy looms large. And then so I had the opportunity to really dig in to their stories. Obviously, I wasn't around in uh, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So it was great to, you know, get that historical perspective and just kind of find out what it was like for them to, to grow up in Santa Barbara, how they developed, you know, as athletes, how they developed as people from being in Santa Barbara. and. You know, really the thing that really stood out from their early formative years the most was the diversity of Santa Barbara and how they got to grow up and be around all different types of people and cultures and how that really just made them very open people as far as just understanding um, different perspectives and how that really helped them along the way in their journey. For Sam, he was a legendary figure pretty much from the time uh, he left Santa Barbara High. He he, He was just someone that a lot of people looked up to. And it was just more than his athletic exploits. I just think it was really, you know, his humility and the fact that he just had a way with people. So uh, when he moved on to USC, uh, one of the biggest things, you know, that happened was, you know, he was able to be a part of, uh, you know, integration really um, through that game with uh, Alabama. And I was part of his legacy, you know, that all the brothers uh, kind of played a role in. Sam often told me how, uh, just about that, how great it was to grow up in Santa Barbara and, He's, you know, of course, he played down in Alabama and got a look at segregation down there. And uh, and as even as a pro with the New England Patriots, he said there were certain areas of Boston where he was a pro football player that he was not comfortable 
being in because of you know racial problems in the in Beantown, Boston. And of course, uh, when he joined the Patriots, Boston was going through its own busing issue, so they were facing a form of in integration at that time. And you know, uh, Sam told me, you know, I went to school with everybody well before 1973-74 when I moved to Boston, and then for them to just finally be, you know, approaching and dealing with this issue when in, in Santa Barbara, it was something that had been, re, you know, resolved long ago or had never been, had that level of uh, segregation at all, perhaps. So can you take me back to that day at the USC versus Alabama game? Why was Sam's performance so influential in breaking down those racial barriers that were in football at the time? Well, I, I watched that game on television, of course, uh, it was just the overwhelming, powerful display of football he gave actually very early in the game. He scored two touchdowns. It was, it was his very first college football game. He was a sophomore, couldn't play as a freshman. And he just was too big, too strong, too fast for the Alabama defense. It you know, garnered nationwide attention. And you know historically, it became famous. Books were written about it. The fact that Alabama started to recruit black athletes uh, after that game was very significant. The whole Southeastern Conference that has all those great football teams, Alabama, Auburn, et cetera, were all white until after that game. So Victor, how did you frame the story and what was it like speaking to the Cunninghams about their experiences? I really wanted to tell the story of all the brothers. I mean. There's so, there's been so many, like, like John said, there's been books written about Sam's performance. And I really wanted to bring the Santa Barbara perspective into it and do it in a way that, tell the story in a way that it hadn't been told before. For, for Sam, for him to go to um, Alabama and, and, and have that legendary performance, he didn't really understand, you know, segregation to that extent when he was, you know, I think he had just turned 20 years old when that game was played. But over time, he was able to gain perspective. You know, he eventually was able to talk to people from the city of Birmingham and, you know, about what it meant to them to see, you know, a Black player perform in that way and, you know, how it really opened up the minds of people about integrating the team. The Alabama faithful, they don't like losing. So when USC came in with Black players, probably the first fully integrated team and to ever play in the state of Alabama. I, I believe there had been black players, but not like a fully integrated team to play in the state. And to play so well was just extremely powerful. But it, 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 the story wasn't just about Sam, you know, it was, it was about, you know, all four brothers and, you know, the younger brothers coming up in Sam's legacy, which is, you know, a powerful thing in itself. You know, they had this brother who had done so much. Um, and then, you know, the expectations after that are just so high. And for them to, uh, aspire to be like their older brother is a story in and to itself. So uh, for me, that was just, I think the whole thing was just powerful just because, you know, we can all relate in some way or another to living up to expectations or trying to be the best that we can be in our own way. And John, you're the biggest expert on Sam Cunningham in the world. So how did your expertise on his background add to the piece? Well, I just gave uh, Victor a lot of background and copy of a big long article I wrote on the anniversary of his Rose Bowl game. You know, the, the Alabama game we talked about was the very first game of his career. The very last of his college career was in the Rose Bowl in 1973 
when he broke the Rose Bowl record by scoring four touchdowns. I think that was a real gift to him given by the USC coach because he didn't really carry the ball that much at USC. He was always blocking for their tailbacks. And they got to the Rose Bowl and got the ball in, in the red zone inside the five actually. And four times they gave the ball to Sam so he could dive over the, into the end zone and score a touchdown. Great story about that. John McKay, the SC coach, Sam told me that he liked to mess with Woody Hayes, the famous Ohio State coach. And before his last touchdown, SC was way ahead by that time. John McKay looked across the field and said, uh, hey, Woody. And he made gestures with his hands that uh, Big Sam was going to go into the end zone again and you guys can't do anything about it. And I'm sure uh, that Woody Hayes was a little disgruntled about that. But that's just how good Sam was. His coach could predict his score a touchdown and he would go out and do it. So there's a special dedication to the Cunningham family coming up and that's the anchor for this piece. Can you tell me a bit about that and why this is such a novel thing for a school to be dedicating a field to players? Yeah, as I think Sam put it best when he said, you know, it's, it's a truly special thing to have a, a stadium track uh, dedicated to you while you're still alive. And then also for it to be an athlete and, you know, not like a coach or donor or administrator, you know, um, is, is a truly special thing and just kind of shows the imprint that they put, uh, you know, on, on the school and cements their legendary status. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they've all brought some glory to Santa Barbara, but also Santa Barbara has been good to them. And, you know, that's one thing Sam has always acknowledged. Uh, you know, they, they love their old school and I think they're all going to be here on uh July 3rd for the dedication of the track. Uh, in addition, uh, Randall helped uh, bring in the track surface that they ended up using, which is the Italian-based Mondo tracks, which are considered to be one of the best in the world. I, I mean, Randall mentioned that happening based on his recommendation to some extent. So, you know, he sees that as like a, his contribution to the project. The, the Cunningham family doesn't stop with those four brothers. Uh, Randall has a daughter named Vashtai who was on the Olympic team in the high jump in 2016, and she will soon be trying to qualify for the Olympics that are coming up in Tokyo. Uh, she's gone uh, almost six foot seven in the high jump. And he had a son, Randall Jr., who high jumped seven feet five at USC. So uh, the Cunningham legends are, are going onward. Yeah, in addition, uh, Anthony's son, Taroki, played at Santa Barbara High. I believe it was 2012 to 2014. He was a star running back. And uh, so the legacy continued with the next generation. It's a really cool part as well. Well, and with the dedication, their legacy will live on at Santa Barbara High and Santa Barbara. So I know we've talked a lot about Sam, but what about Randall Cunningham? What was his career like? You know, Randall Cunningham's impact, I mean, as a quarterback in the 1980s, at, for, for, there, for him to be a black quarterback, there had been other black quarterbacks before, but I don't, I don't think there was any who made an impact like Randall. He kind of revolutionized the position with his prototypical size, speed, arm strength. When he retired, I believe he had the, the record for all-time rushing yards by a quarterback, but even more than his stats were the highlights that he put up. He was just a truly spectacular specimen, worth the price of admission in every way. The way he played the game was exciting. His ability to beat defenses in different ways kind of set the stage or paved the way for some of the quarterbacks of today who play in a similar way. So it's really cool that for two people who've had such a crazy impact on American sports to come from the same family 
and be from Santa Barbara is something that's truly special. And I just don't even think that people recognize what that means and how they change the way we view sports in general in this country. Randall was taken into the College Football Hall of Fame as a punter out of Nevada, Las Vegas. And he's remembered in Philadelphia for a 90-yard punt when the Eagles were backed up against the goal line and he kicked the ball almost to the other goal line. You know, one of the many uh, legendary uh, moments in his career, he had a Monday night game where he threw a touchdown pass after almost being upended by a defender. And what precedence do you think Randall set, not only for football players, but for athletes in general? Well, he's he's got a real swagger. He's a little more so than uh, Sam did. You know, Sam was totally all about the team. I mean, he was probably the perfect guy to have on, on any team. He did whatever it took. Uh, you know, Randall had a little bit more of a star quality to him. He's a minister in Las Vegas. He has his own church there now. And I believe he's become the chaplain for the uh, Las Vegas Raiders NFL team because he's such an inspirational guy. And he is the coach of his daughter who's going to, was in the Olympics. He uh, hasn't stopped his uh, efforts. Uh, you know, he's not just sitting back. You know, what he did for me uh, growing up, Randall Cunningham was just a special player for me to watch. I mean, I, I think back to the 98 Vikings team and, you know, him throwing deep balls to Randy Moss and, you know, the records they broke and just how fun it was to watch football when he was playing. I just think that that's really the, the important thing is that he made, he enriched people's lives through the way he played a game, which is always just so special. You know, it's unfortunate that he never did play in the Super Bowl. Yeah. He, in fact, when he was younger, he said, I want to be the first black quarterback in the Super Bowl. And then uh, Doug Williams of the Washington football team, we should call it now, did uh, win the Super Bowl before Randall got a chance. And they were in the conference finals against Atlanta, about to go to the Super Bowl when the Vikings place kicker missed a field goal. And uh, that was as close as Randall got. That team was 15-1. and one. It's probably considered the best team, maybe perhaps the, along with the New England Patriots in 2007, probably the, the best team to, to never win a Super Bowl. So it's an interesting distinction there. <laughs> so finally, how do you think the Cunninghams created that space for those who didn't see themselves represented on the field? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a stigma uh, with Black quarterbacks. It's, it's, just, it's just the reality um, through the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Even now, it's, it's, we've progressed, but it's still something that we have a ways to go with. The way that Randall did it, definitely helped and helped pave the way. And, uh, you know, he never really wanted to, you know, address it. I think he wanted to let his play speak for himself. He just wanted the opportunity to just show what he could do and just let his play on the field just speak for itself. And I think he did that. Actually, one of the, I think of is actually introducing uh, Victor to, especially to Sam Cunningham. I, I kept a relationship with him over the years. I would call him before SC played Notre Dame. I would call him when Alabama came to play SC again, you know, to look back at that 1970 game. And he was always just gracious and not a spoiled athlete who says, oh, you know, talk to me through my agent or uh, whatever. He's just a real guy, a real person. And uh, I was glad I could uh, get Victor to know him a little bit. And it's something that Santa Barbara has to know about. 
Well, thank you so much, Victor and John, for sharing with me the story of the Cunningham family. The dedication of the Santa Barbara High track field will be coming up in July, so look out for that. Thank you again to Charles Donnellan and Selena Garcia for sharing your stories with me, as well as Cameron DePaco for reading her poem live on air. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode. 